Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the current state of homelessness in America and the best solution we currently know of to tackle the problem. Spoiler alert, it's surprisingly simple. The best way to end homelessness is to give people homes. You should still listen, though. Clips today are from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, The Tom Hartman Program, 99% Invisible, and Second Thought, with additional members-only clips from Justice in America and the PBS NewsHour. I know it is easy to criticize Fox News for being alarmist. Alarmism is their whole thing. That and airing ads for pills that make your dick go bongo. But the truth is... Even some residents of Austin, famously a blue dot in a red state, have said it's been a struggle to reconcile their feelings about their homeless neighbors. Do you think if you had seen this issue happening in another city and it wasn't happening in your neighborhood, you would feel differently? Once you're in the middle of it, you change your mind of how you approach the situation. But as your safety declines, so does your compassion. Every every time I have to pick up human shit, my liberalness just got lowered one, but one more notch. Wow, that is very honest. Every time I have to pick up human shit, my liberalism gets lowered is quite the sentence. Although I'm surprised it was heard in this context and not in a leaked recording from an Amy Klobuchar staff meeting. And look, again, I am not saying that that is a nice situation to be presented with, but far too often, stories focusing on homelessness are presented solely through the lens of how it affects those with homes. When in reality, it is obviously the people without them who need the real help. And the demonization of the homeless community in Austin may well have contributed to incidents like this. We had so many people throw glass bottles from their cars at our tents and said, y'all want trash, y'all need to get a job, y'all need to get housing, y'all don't need to be out on the streets. Or some would yell out, go home. It's like, this is technically our home. Right. And that is obviously horrible, although I will say, no one screaming out of a car window has ever said anything worthwhile. It's like giving a eulogy through flash mob. The method of delivery alone is just immediately disqualifying. The story of homelessness in this country is grounded in a failure of perception compounded by failures of policy. So tonight, let's look at the way homelessness is talked about, how the problem is currently being made worse, and what could actually help. And like so many things, the modern version of this issue was turbocharged by Ronald Reagan, who came to power at a time when homelessness was increasing and made the problem far worse by cutting programs for the poor and slashing housing subsidies by 75%, making it pretty galling that Reagan regularly made arguments like this. One problem uh, that we've had even in the best of times, and that is the people who are sleeping on the grates, the homeless who are homeless, you might say, by choice. Uh, I'm sorry, homeless by choice? Look, there were lots of things from 1984 that we could have used an undo button for. Long Dok Dong, uh, most of Temple of Doom, this extremely unfortunate Jell-O ad. But Reagan's quarter-arse thoughts on homelessness are near the top of that list. And that notion that homelessness isn't related to economic policies, but simply reflects the problems of the individuals experiencing it, still informs the way it's discussed today. Here is Dr. Drew, of all people, talking to Seth Green, of all people, and pushing back on the notion that the homeless crisis in L.A. might have anything to do with a shortage of affordable housing. This isn't it's, a housing problem. It's not? No. No. What is that, the, that's a hoax. That's a hoax being perpetrated by the government here locally. That they they just, need to stop. That there isn't a bit. Because it seems and like... Of course we have housing expense issues, but we, we just absorbed a million illegal uh, undocumented immigrants without a home, without a country, without a job, without a penny. We absorbed them. They found a place to live. Hmm. It's a hoax. So it's a mental health crisis and addiction crisis. Full on. Oh, okay then. I certainly don't see why we wouldn't innately trust Dr. Drew confidently mouth-splooging bullshit theories to Dr. Evil's son, but... <laughs> A few notes on what he said there. Set aside the nonsense that undocumented immigrants don't experience homelessness, because experts will tell you that they very much do. They're just less likely to avail themselves of services because of the whole undocumented thing. Instead, let's address the notion that all of this is down to mental health and addiction, because yes... Many who are homeless do struggle with both those things, and those people are often the most visible, 
but by no means all of them. Also, in many cases, those struggles can be the result of being homeless and not the cause of it. The truth is, there are many reasons someone might find themselves without housing, medical debt, job loss, fleeing domestic violence, being kicked out of their homes because their parents don't approve their sexuality, or being recently released from prison, or just the overriding fact that housing costs are rising much faster than wages. Currently, 70% of all extremely low-income families are spending more than half their income on rent. And only 37 affordable and available homes exist for every 100 extremely low-income renter households. And that is a startlingly low number, especially considering just how much this country loves watching TV shows about homes. Little homes, humongo homes, homes for ghosts, and homes remodeled by weirdo twins who definitely shower together. To name just a few of them. The point here is, it doesn't take much for people to suddenly find themselves without stable housing, as this woman found out. Two years ago, Priscilla had a full-time job at a health clinic for the homeless. Her husband, Ryan, stayed home to care for their two sons. The youngest has severe autism. They lived on a tight budget, and then their landlord raised the rent $150. That's a lot of money for a lot of people that live paycheck by paycheck, and we live like that. The family was evicted and in a place they never imagined, homeless themselves, living in their car. I work at a homeless clinic and I'm homeless. How the heck does that happen to me? Yeah, that is an awful situation to be in. You never want to find yourself suddenly saying, how did this happen to me? with the sole exception of being if you are knee-deep in Stanley Tucci sheets. And even then, why question it? You're swimming in Tucci poppermint. This is going to be a delight. So despite Reagan's confidence, there can be not much choice in the matter after all. As for those outward signs of homelessness that raise such alarm, they are typically the result of public policy choices that we have made. Remember that woman complaining about human shit? That is actually a common thread in coverage of the homeless. In L.A., you can find multiple stories about human feces near homeless encampments. But it's worth knowing there is a reason for that. Most of the city's hundreds of encampments are nowhere near a public toilet. In fact, L.A. has only 16 mobile toilet stations for its 36,000 homeless people. To make matters worse, with no funding for round-the-clock security, the city hauls away these toilets at night, leaving the homeless no choice but to go on the streets. What the fuck to all of that? From the amount of public toilet stations available being less than the amount of Bond movies to shuffling those very minimal toilets away like they're going to turn into a pumpkin at midnight. And while that clip is from just before the pandemic, which prompted city officials to increase toilet stations, there are still currently only 55 accessible 24-7. So the next time you complain about human shit in the street, maybe think about what it would be like if someone padlocked your bathroom every night. You too would suddenly be getting really creative really fast. And it seems the impulse behind many local policies surrounding unhoused people isn't so much to help them as to punish them for their existence and keep them out of sight. You're probably familiar with hostile architecture designed to prevent homeless people from sitting and lying on certain property. It's why you'll sometimes see spikes under bridges like this or benches with dividers to prevent anyone lying down. And one city went even beyond architecture. Debate raging over a Florida city playing children's music at a park pavilion at night to keep homeless people away. People say the music rotates between Baby Shark and this song. Jeez, jeez. It's raining tacos. Raining tacos. It's true. They pumped the song Raining Tacos at people when they were just trying to sleep, which is completely inhumane. Nobody deserved that. Homelessness was not much of a problem prior to the mid-1980s in the United States. In fact, in the 1970s, this is is fascinating, Um, Henry Graeber wrote about this over at Slate. A 1976 history of low-income housing in America made the impossibly foreign observation that, quote, the housing industry trades on the knowledge that no Western country can politically afford to permit its citizens to sleep on the streets. Now, you know, and it goes on to say the word homeless in those days, we're talking about 1976, four years before Reagan, 
Jimmy Carter, just elected president. The word homeless in those days was used mainly to describe persons displaced by war or natural disasters. Now, there were a few people sleeping rough, but it was nothing like what followed because in Reagan's first year in office, he not only cut taxes on rich people from 74% down to 25% and then raised them back up to around 35%, but oversaw homelessness exploding. How did that happen? Well, he cut funding for public housing and Section 8 housing subsidies in half. Now, these are, these are the, this is from the, the, the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson from the 1960s. He, you know, created these, these uh, public housing and Section 8 subsidies. You know, largely eliminated homelessness in the United States for a while, and then Reagan slashed it in half in his first year and then continued to slash housing supports. It, it's it's a, a pretty breathtaking situation. And and here we are. I mean, you know, it's, it's far worse than it ever was. Today, one-third of homeless people in New York City are actually families with children, and one-third of them have somebody working. But Finland said, okay, that's it. We're going to end homelessness. It's really simple. It's like saying we're going to end poverty. We're going to give money to poor people. Right? You want to end homelessness, you give housing to homeless people. Now, the Republican response to that is, oh, my God, you've got some of those people who are lazy and won't work. So what? You know, yeah, there'll be a few, uh, what would you call them, grifters or parasites are the phrases that Republicans use. I would call them, you know, people who are struggling, people who are are are, uh, you know, unable to find meaningful work, people who are afflicted with mental illness. I mean, there's a whole variety of probable reasons for this, but it's still, it's such a small percentage of the population. When Finland, you know, typically 2-3%, when Finland looked at this situation, they concluded, and their first year experiment with this, or first two-year experiment with this kind of indicates, that simply giving housing to homeless people costs the government of Finland 16,000 euros or about $18,000 per year per homeless person less than than letting them sleep in the streets and then having to pick up the cost of policing and emergency services, medical services, uh, cleaning up the mess. Um, uh, dealing, with, you're dealing with the courts. I mean, all, there, there are a lot of expenses associated with homelessness that society pays, in addition to a you know radically reduced quality of life for people who live in you know near large quantities of homeless people. And so, this housing first movement has been adopted now. It's been it's been adopted actually in a, a number of. Um, places, but it's always been individual cities that have done it around the world. And now Finland is the first country to actually adopt it and say, okay, we're going to do it. Now, the problem with implementing this here in the United States, and there's every reason to believe that our experience would be identical to Finland's, by the way, that giving housing to homeless people would actually cost us less than leaving them homeless. But the problem we have is that the Supreme Court in 76, 78, and 2010 with Citizens United basically said that morbidly rich people may, no problem at all, morbidly rich people may control, may own politicians and political parties. And so now you've got the entire Republican Party owned and controlled by morbidly rich people. And those people are saying, no, don't want to pay any taxes. You want to house homeless people? That's going to cost money. I don't want to pay any more taxes on that. And then, of course, you got right wingers who are just like, what? Help people? No, we don't do that. You you know, what do you do when someone's down? You kick them. Otherwise, they won't get up. Well, you know, maybe that's true of a kind of the normal person, but a person who's struggling with with the homelessness, a person who's struggling with joblessness, a person who's struggling with mental illness or addiction. No, they need a house first or a flat, an apartment, a room, and then they need some of those services. Very straightforward stuff. Reagan, by the way, in, in, uh, in the 1980s gave this 
famous speech. This is uh, this is 1984. This is four years after, or three years after he cut housing support in half in the United States. He said, well, "What we have found in this country, and we're maybe more aware of it now, is uh, one problem we've had, even in the best of times, is people sleeping on the grates, the in, the homeless, you might say, but they are homeless by choice." This is a speech Reagan gave in '84, right? He said the problem has been aggravated by new laws requiring mental health institutions to release disturbed persons who have no place to go. Yeah, his laws. He, he goes on to say, as the political rhetoric heats up, there will be those trying to appeal to greed and envy. Make no mistake about that. What they're trying to do is to suggest that our tax program favors the rich. This is the same anti-business, anti-success attitude that brought this country to the brink of economic disaster, said Ronald Reagan in 1984. Uh, I, I'm reading from a piece in the Washington Post, published February 1st, 1984, titled Homeless Choose to Be, Reagan says. Uh, <laughs> Reagan, this uh, again, reading from the article, Reagan branded the charge that he favors the rich an absolute falsehood. Reagan said he rejected the proposition that supporting government programs for the poor is a form of charity. He said charity is what an individual chooses to do. Uh, Reagan did not mention the 8.2% unemployment rate in 1984. That's worse than it is right now during St. Ronnie's reign, right? And he said, now we can turn to the equally difficult task of streamlining government, making it more efficient. Right. What was his top priority? He said uh, the $180 billion budget deficit. He got the most applause of the day, however, when he told the convention that he would not raise taxes to reduce that deficit. After a couple years of this routine, taking people to Bellevue, seeing them bounce back onto the streets, Sam decided to try something new. Instead of dragging people off to the hospital, or a kind of here's your diagnosis and here's your prescription methodology, Sam wanted to try basically just asking people how he could help. We're going to listen to our clients and we're going to really offer them the things they want in the sequence they wanted. We were going to facilitate it. Sam hired a new team, some of whom had personal, lived experience with homelessness. And they opened a drop-in center for people who were struggling with either mental illness or addiction or both. They named the center Choices Unlimited, although mostly people just called it Choices. Choices wanted to give people a place to come and rest, take a shower, and then start to think about a plan. Like, we're still out, we're still homeless, but we could go there during the day and get shower and uh, change clothes and they buy you lunch. This is Alan. I'm just going to use his first name to protect his privacy. Alan was one of the first clients at Choices. He'd grown up in Boston and had made his way to New York in the early 80s. By the time he ended up at the Choices drop-in center, he'd already had a bunch of interactions with the kind of psychiatry that Sam was hoping to move away from. When Alan was just 13, he ended up in Bridgewater State Hospital after getting into a fight. Bridgewater was an infamous prison-slash-hospital for the so-called criminally insane. Prison-slash-hospital was a prison period. They just called it a hospital. That was a, that was a torture chamber. That's what it was. I turned 14 in one of those cells. Alan told me that abuse from his mother and mistreatment from all kinds of authority figures had left him full of rage that he couldn't always control. I got to a point where I wasn't taking no shit from nobody. I, oh, yeah, I used, to, I used to fight a lot. I do got a short temper when it comes to a bunch of bull crap. He would come into my office like, if they ever do this to me, I'm going to kill them, you know, like this. And I'm like, Alan... You can't actually say these things. It's a mental health program. Like, people are going to come and lock you up. You know, like, you got to watch your language, you know. For Alan, it was anger. But all the clients at Choices were dealing with some kind of mental health issue. Things like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. These clients didn't trust the choices other people made for them but maybe they would trust their own. Sam's job was just to help make it happen. 
You want a drug rehab program? We'll help you find one and enroll. You want to get on meds? We'll get you connected to the right doctors. You want housing? Cool, we can help with that too. Except housing, it turned out, was tricky. It was also what Alan and just about everyone else wanted. So, okay, people want housing. So there were any number of housing providers uh, open for business at that time. The system for getting into housing at that time, in the 1980s and 90s, was designed as a sort of staircase. You started at the bottom in shelter, and then if you fulfilled certain requirements, like getting sober or taking your meds, you graduated to something sort of like a dormitory. From there, you might go to a shared apartment with a few other people. The final, final step at the very top of the staircase might be your own apartment in a building with other formerly homeless people. But it was hard to get there. The idea behind the staircase was something people called housing readiness. A a kind of a quarantining to to get people ready for housing and and get them to get their life together so that they can get back into housing. To Sam, the staircase felt frustratingly paternalistic. When he heard housing readiness, it sounded more like housing worthiness. You know, the the kind of uh, improve the poor attitude. The staff at Choices helped the clients apply for these programs. But inevitably, the housing providers would end up asking things like, how long have you been clean and sober? And if you have a mental illness, what sort of treatment are you doing? What medications are you taking, etc.? And so when these kinds of questions came up, our applicants repeatedly failed uh, the housing interviews. We could not persuade housing providers to take anybody. We were failing miserably. It's sort of a problem when you start a program called Choices Unlimited, only to find that the choices are, in fact, quite limited. And so once again, Sam started thinking about doing something new. Something that at the time, barely anyone had actually tried before. He wanted to try moving homeless people with significant mental health issues straight from the streets into their own apartments. Just regular apartments that they would find for folks on the private market. This approach would come to be known as housing first. But back then, it was just a wild idea they were trying out. You know, the people we were uh, going to house... When you met them, they didn't inspire confidence that it would all work out okay. Sam and his colleagues secured money from the State Office of Mental Health Services to pay for this experiment. Enough for 50 apartments plus case management services. And they started a new nonprofit to handle all this new work called Pathways to Housing. One of the first things they had to do was reach out to landlords. So you have to, you know, beat the streets and find the people that uh, are willing to work with you. And what would you tell them about the clients? We would tell them as little as possible. Sam said they would tell people, basically, we're working with low-income clients, helping them find housing, but not we're working with formerly homeless, severely mentally ill clients who are also struggling with addiction. They also had people on staff whose specific job it was to communicate with landlords. And it helped, Sam said, that they were always able to guarantee the rent would be paid. Pathways clients would have to put 30% of their incomes toward rent, but the rest would be covered. For most clients, the 30% came out of some kind of benefit check they were eligible to receive from the government. The hope was that Pathways would continue to provide this subsidy for the rest of these clients' lives if they needed it. Although, at the beginning, Sam said, no one had any idea whether this experiment would last. Sam told us that the apartments is ours as soon as we get the leases. So we were sitting down there in choices one day. And this young lady, she was the uh, this receptionist or the secretary or whatever. And she got all the sweaty guys standing around her, you know, at that fax machine. And we're watching this fax machine push the leases out. And we're standing there. Oh, there's mine right there. Mine's coming out over there. That's what mine, you know. As soon as we got the lease, we walk over to that apartment building and to Alex. He was the super. And we show him that lease, and he knows everything's legitimate. Then he give us the keys and point to the apartment. That's yours. I was so overwhelmed with joy. I didn't know how to act. 
This is Kamar D. Smallwood. And D would be my middle initial, and Smallwood is my last name. But I prefer to be called Kamar because that's my Muslim name. So that's who I am. So I love that name. Like Alan, Kamar was one of the first people to get housing through the Pathways program. For the last several years, she'd been sleeping wherever she could. I slept all over the place. I slept in the subway station in 42nd Street. Before you get to the end train, it used to be a newsstand in a bathroom. And there was a lady that worked and cleaned the bathrooms. And at nighttime, she would lock me in the bathroom so I would stay in there and I would go to sleep. And then when she came in the morning to clean up, she'd open the door and let me out. I slept in a cardboard box under the FDR drive, I think that was. Finally, after years of homelessness, Kamara and her boyfriend, who was also homeless, were getting their own place. We had parquet floors, central heating, central air conditioning. We had two bedrooms, and it was only me and him. If you wanted to go to the park, you just cross the street, go over there, have a cookout. We had a night. We lived right on Central Park, West 110th Street. Beautiful. Nice over there. Do you remember, like, trying to kind of set it up and decorate it and just feeling like... I wasn't even thinking about decoration. I was just so glad I wasn't in the street. But that beautiful place by the park, it didn't last that long. We was living there and we was doing well, but we just couldn't let go of the drugs. <laughs> yeah, we was running out, going around the corner, buying drugs and coming back. And I, I don't know if anybody's seen us go buy drugs and then come back, because all I know is that they kept saying we were doing a lot of running in and out, and they not having it. A few months into their stay, Kamar and her partner got kicked out of their building. I felt really bad. I felt like that. I wish I could get off these drugs. Alan had problems, too. Not with his apartment. Alan's problem was always his anger. He got in fights with everyone, with coworkers, police, caseworkers. It didn't take much, you know, like uh, for him to get very upset. He had a very low threshold for disappointment. And he would threaten people, like, and he was very, very good at threats. I mean, they were not like, I'll kill you. Like, they were very specific to the person, you know, like he knew how to read people's vulnerabilities in a way. It was kind of uh, uncanny. At some point, Alan had threatened so many people at Pathways that the program director told Sam he'd get kicked out if he did it one more time. Sam's experiment was being tested. You know, it's not like this thing solves your problems of loneliness, of poverty, of addiction, of mental illness, of disconnection from your family. It's not, it's not like a panacea. The whole point of doing Housing First is you can actually start to deal with these other things which are much more profound and much more difficult. And, you know, and at least it gives you a shot at having those conversations because if people are on the street, you're never going to be able to have those conversations because it's all about where am I going to sleep and what am I going to eat? And, you know, like, am I safe? Sam is fond of saying housing first does not mean housing only. And Pathways clients had access to all kinds of support, like therapy and drug treatment. And in general, Sam just tried really hard not to give up on folks. When Alan was on the verge of getting kicked out of the program for threatening people, Sam took him out to dinner to make one last appeal. And uh, we were at a Chinese restaurant, and I had to kind of convey this news to him that uh, if he threatened anyone else on the staff, that that would be it. We couldn't work with him anymore. And when I started telling him about it, I uh, started to cry because I'd spent years just like trying to hold on to people and here I'm telling him like I have to go and when he saw me crying his response was I had no idea it meant that much to you I, I'm not going to do that anymore he, he, he did it look I saw it in his face that's what made me I'm going to tell you the truth that's what really made me really stop 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 because I did see that you know, this guy right here, he, he's really trying to protect me because he didn't have to do that. That's what I told myself. And that's when I started chilling out a bit.
Wall Street's barons are causing homelessness. Can we stop them? And it's this is just absolutely astonishing. Zillow, you know, the big national real estate listing company, Zillow.com is their website. Uh, they funded a uh, an in-depth research study into the relationship between housing prices and homelessness, which is remarkable and remarkably socially responsible. And what they found is that whenever the cost of houses exceeds 32% of the median income in a neighborhood, you start seeing a rapid explosion of homelessness. In other words, when houses become more than, begin to cost more than three times the average wage, then homelessness starts to stalk neighborhoods. The median American income right now is $35,805. Say $36,000. So what they're saying is for the median neighborhood, if the house is costing more than three times that, which would be like, what, 100000 um, You're going to start seeing homelessness. And what we're finding for what the Fed, that the median house right now is selling for $374,900. That was last year's numbers from the Fed. As Zillow reports, uh, the rent burden already exceeds the 32% of median income threshold in 100 of the 386 markets included in this analysis. I tell the story of my dad back in 1956, or 57, I guess it was. I was six years old. He got a VA loan, uh, which again, we used to subsidize Americans buying homes. Now we're subsidizing giant corporations buying homes with tax breaks. But anyhow, he he bought this house in in South Lansing, Michigan for 13,000 bucks. Maybe it was 15. I'm pretty sure it was 13. Anyhow, it was in that neighborhood. And that was about twice what he made when he was working at, you know, a good union job at a tool and die shop. Uh, obviously, the dollar was worth a lot more back in 1957. But um, back then, the median price of the single family home was 2.2 times the median American family income. It was about twice what people earned. That was the, the hot cost. And that's why people were able to live and pay their rent and pay their mortgage and, and have food for their kids and, and even put their kids through college, um, which also wasn't very expensive then, and afford health insurance or afford medical expenses. Because housing didn't, you know, wasn't taking this giant bite out of us. Today, the Fed says the average, the median house is selling for $374,000. And we're seeing this in part because, you know, there's more Americans and fewer houses. When my dad bought his house, there were 168 million uh, people in the United States. Today, there's 330 million. And, you know, it's true that, you know, Reaganism has stopped the growth of wages while causing an explosion in the, in the, in the growth of everything else. But the main thing that's driving this is actually not, it, it started with foreign investment. There was this big wave of foreign investment in U.S. housing over, over the last 30 years, more or less. But the last decade has been a completely different thing. And, and, and it can track back to this uh, study that Morgan Stanley did in 2011 that they published uh, saying that basically this is the great new investment opportunity. Buy up all the available housing in, in, a, in, a, in a middle class neighborhood. Turn it all into rentals. So basically, if somebody wants to live there, if it's a neighborhood that's got good schools, that was the principal magnet. You got a neighborhood with good schools, buy up all the houses in that neighborhood and then rent them out to people so people can no longer buy the houses. And what this does is it drives up the housing prices. They tell the story that there was a Wall Street Journal article about this meet your new landlord, Wall Street. Uh, they say, you know, on the first Tuesday of every month, uh, this is in Atlanta, in Atlanta, where the first Tuesday of every month is when they auction off homes that are in foreclosure. On the first Tuesday of each month, of each month, investors toted duffels stuffed with millions of dollars in cashier's checks made out in various denominations so they wouldn't have to interrupt their buying spree with trips to the bank. In uh, this one suburb of Nashville that they documented in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the vice mayor, Bruce Hall, says, you know, before the big companies came in, you could rent a three-bedroom, two-bath house for 1000 bucks a month. The average rent now, 
As a consequence of, it, well, I just quote from the Wall Street Journal, quote, the average rent for what, for 148 single family homes in Spring Hill owned by the big four Wall Street investor landlords was about $1,773 a month. So rents have almost doubled. Brian Desember uh, publi- just published this new book, Underwater, How Our American Dream of Homeownership Has Become a Nightmare. And he tells the story of, of home buyers, you know, uh, middle class families who are trying to buy their first home. And they're going in and they're making offers on houses at asking price. You know, there's a house on the market for $150,000. They offer $150,000. And suddenly somebody comes in like minutes later and says, we'll make it $160,000 cash. And of course, the home buyers can't offer cash. They have to say, well, it's, you know, subject to approval of the bank and the bank won't approve it until there's an inspection. And so it's going to take a month. And, you know, home sellers would much rather have cash than wait a month. So anyhow, they note that this guy, uh, this one family, the Jacobs family, they were bewildered. They, they, they made an offer on a house. As I recall, it was around $90,000 house. They made an offer on it. Um, and it was at ask. And then the seller came back and said, well, somebody just offered $10,000 more or a couple thousand dollars more, whatever it was. And, and so the Jacobs family upped their bid and instantly the other bidder and, and finally, it just hit the point, it, it passed through $100,000, it hit the point where the Jacobs family said, we can't afford it anymore. And they backed out. And they were trying to figure out who was this aggressive bidder. It turns out it was Blackstone Group, which is an almost $1 trillion investment fund run out of New York City. It's a Wall Street investor group. It's In fact, it's the largest real estate investor in the world right now. And... That week, they were buying, at that time, they were buying $150 million worth of American houses every week, trying to spend over $10 billion. In 2018, according to the Wall Street Journal, corporations bought one out of every 10 homes sold in America. Uh, Desimer, in his uh, book, he notes, between 2006 and 2016, when the home ownership rate fell to its lowest level in 50 years, the numbers of renters grew by about a quarter. And again, you go back to the study by Zillow. You know, what Zillow found was that, quote, communities where people spend more than 32% of their income on rent can expect a more rapid increase in homelessness, number one. Number two, income growth has not kept pace with rents, leading to an affordability crunch with cascading effects that for people on the bottom economic rung increases the risk of homelessness. And number three, the areas, I'm reading from the study, the areas that are most vulnerable to rising rents, unaffordability, and poverty hold 15% of the U.S. population and 47% of people experiencing homelessness. It's measurable, it's predictable, and it's destroying what's left of, of the American working class, particularly minorities, and creating an absolute screaming explosion in homelessness. And this also is locking middle class people out from being able to, to grow equity. Most of the wealth of most middle class families, it's true of me, I can, you know, it's probably true of most people, is their home, their equity in their home. That's their biggest pile of money. And it increases over time faster than any other investment you can make and relatively safely. But now you've got families who are being locked out of the, the market, locked out of the ability to buy a home. And then having to rent where you gain no equity over time, you don't gather wealth. And then, the, and then the, the big corporations come in and start doubling the rents or increasing the rents, and pretty soon you've got this explosion of homelessness. About 600,000 people experience homelessness in the U.S. Think about your own life. You might not be homeless or necessarily even know someone who is or has been. But you certainly know someone paying too much for rent, someone having trouble finding a place to live, someone facing eviction. In other words, someone who could become homeless without much needing to go wrong. More and more Americans are joining this category every day. The truth is that in 95% of U.S. counties, those who work a full-time minimum wage job cannot afford even a one-bedroom apartment. Change that to a two-bedroom and the entire country becomes unaffordable. This situation is only getting worse. 
As a result of the pandemic, rising housing costs, wage stagnation, and the inadequate policies of our local and federal governments, the number of people experiencing homelessness and of people on the brink has been steadily growing for the past decade. That is, if you only look at the U.S. In this episode, we're looking at Finland's approach to homelessness, what housing first is, and what it could mean for the American economy. In Finland, only about 5,000 people, 0.1% of the population, are homeless. And that's even with the broadest definition of what constitutes homelessness, which includes more than who you typically think of when you hear the term. The Finnish definition of homelessness goes beyond just those who are living on the street or in emergency accommodations like shelters. In some cities, like the country's capital Helsinki, no one sleeps on the street. That type of homelessness has been completely eliminated. Compare that to the U.S.'s nearly 600,000 homeless people, which is almost exclusively so-called rough sleepers, those who live on the street, and the problem starts to become apparent. What's more important, though, is that homelessness isn't just low in Finland, it's actively going down. Between 2010 and 2018, Finland enjoyed a massive 40% decline in the homelessness rate. If it sounds like we're cherry-picking data, even during the pandemic, which, let me remind you, has caused a massive surge of homelessness in the U.S., homelessness in Finland did not increase. So, what happened? How is Finland so effectively reducing homelessness? In 2007, the Finnish government started a national Housing First program. Housing First is a philosophy that argues that to make progress on homelessness, particularly chronic homelessness, you need more than temporary emergency solutions. You need permanent housing right out the gate. In other words, housing is the starting point, not the end point. The way Housing First programs work is pretty simple. People experiencing homelessness receive independent housing immediately, without having to first fulfill mental health, sobriety, income, employment, or other requirements. Once they're housed, support services are offered, not imposed, and over time, the newly housed begin to finance part of the cost of their housing to the degree that they can afford it. It sounds pretty intuitive, but this is very different from the more common continuum of care or staircase approach we're mostly using. In continuum of care programs, homeless people are expected to make progress on any mental health or addiction issues they may have, and to pass a certain standard before being housed. In this system, housing is at the top of the staircase. These individual changes that these programs require are the sorts of things that are incredibly difficult to address when you are still contending with the anxiety of not having a home, possibly still sleeping on the street. In these continuum of care programs, only once you have demonstrated some change, which we should keep in mind is incredibly difficult to achieve without housing stability, do these programs graduate you into housing arrangements, first shared housing, and slowly over time independent housing. To some, continuum of care approaches sound great. That is, in theory. They map onto our society's values of meritocracy, of security. Only those who are deserving get access to the prize of having a home. Under this mentality, if you don't have a home, it must be because you're just not good enough yet. Come back later. It should be obvious that these programs just don't work. Not only do they strip people of their agency and come with an enormous moral burden, but recidivism is high and a huge number of people don't make it into the program in the first place because of the high barrier to entry. Compare that to Housing First. In the initial study on Housing First back in 2003, a randomized trial of the two approaches decidedly shows the strength of the new program. Around half of the initially homeless group were accepted into permanent housing, regardless of their eligibility according to other programs, and they were then offered tailored and optional care for their individual circumstances. The other half went through conventional channels, and at the end of the trial, the results were clear. The Housing First group spent more time in stable housing, less time hospitalized, and results carried over for longer than when homeless people went through the continuum of care path. Within just six months, Housing First had virtually eliminated homelessness in the experimental group. It was a massive success. That first study was in New York, and inspired by its promising results, the EU ran its own pilot programs in five European countries with the same outcome, secure, long-term housing stability. And now that it's become the official national policy of the Finnish government, we've seen just how much good this can achieve. It is abundantly clear that this approach works. Despite all of this, some of you might still be skeptical. Forget for a second that housing is a universal right we are all entitled to. 
that it is baked into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the U.S. has signed onto and agreed to provide in front of the entire international community. Forget that this right doesn't include temporary shelters, but only real, stable housing, and that there are metrics around accessibility, affordability, discrimination, and protection from eviction which good Housing First programs conform to perfectly, in addition to affirming the basic idea of being decent to real human people. You might still wonder about costs in the wealthiest country in the world that regularly provides housing subsidies mostly to the wealthiest people in the country through mortgage interest tax deductions costing the American people, I don't know, $70 billion a year, or close to 25 times what is set aside for homelessness programs at the federal level. Imagine all that incredibly important stuff doesn't matter. It's gone. Forget about it. Housing first is still cheaper than not housing people or walking them through an ineffective continuum of care program. Not only are people housed through housing first covering part of the cost and are more easily employed, but housing people saves money in the long term on comparatively costly emergency hospitalization bills and absurdly expensive policing which both go down when 1. People's needs are taken care of preventatively, and 2. They aren't exposed to an expensive state apparatus that has criminalized existing without a house. Given all this evidence, you're probably wondering, why aren't we doing this? To be fair, there are some small-scale examples of this in the U.S. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development does fund certain homelessness programs, some of them with the Housing First methods. However, these programs are only robust in a few cities and states. But no matter the nature of the program, whether it's Housing First, Continuum of Care, or something else, funding is far too low. The HUD's budget and municipal aid funds have steadily declined over time, and as a result, programs scrape together a budget from the general public and several different local and federal funds, rarely ever amounting to what they actually need to provide effective services. But the main problem behind all of this isn't that homelessness programs aren't getting enough funding. That is an issue just a little further down the line. The underlying problem is affordable housing. And at the core of that problem is our capitalist organization of the economy. Under a capitalist economy, housing isn't treated like the right it's considered to be by most nations, including, on paper, the United States. Instead, it's a commodity. Something to be traded, speculated on, turned for a profit. That is the main goal of housing in a commodity market. Not putting people in homes, making money. As a result, developers, investors, and the like don't focus their energy on housing the poor, from whom they can only extract so much, but rather on building luxury accommodations for the wealthy, leaving largely empty units across the country only rarely occupied, if at all. While people in desperate need of housing are refused access and subjected to a manufactured housing scarcity, on top of that, there is a very real incentive for capitalists to only partially resolve homelessness. The threat of losing the roof over your head keeps even the most exploited worker in a job they hate. Increasingly, that threat forces people into even more dire conditions as wages become less and less sufficient to cover housing costs, forcing people to take on several jobs and work untenable hours to avoid the possibility of eviction. It is not in the capitalist's interest to remove that powerful, terrifying incentive. And here is where the Finnish success story may go beyond Housing First alone. Not only is Housing First doing a good job of taking people out of homelessness in a reliable way, but a social democratic organizing of the economy is limiting the extent to which people are likely to fall into it in the first place. It's still capitalism, so it still relies on somebody being exploited, in this case people in the global south, but at the very least, social democracy goes part of the way on neutering perverse capitalist incentives on continuing homelessness domestically. One key element of this is unionization. High unionization at 75% of the Finnish workforce, and therefore higher wages and higher job security than in freer markets, mean that as people exit homelessness, they are unlikely to be replaced or fall back into it themselves. American conservatives love to rail against housing first, touting its failures to make significant changes in cities like Los Angeles, where homelessness has continued to rise despite housing first programs taking root. What they conveniently forget to mention is that the continuum of care programs they prefer still deliver worse results. And the core issue of the skyrocketing housing prices in the free market is why people are even pushed out into homelessness in the first place.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Last Week Tonight, with John Oliver explaining the political difficulty of dealing with homelessness. Tom Hartman explained the origins of America's current homeless problem going back to Reagan. 99% Invisible told the origin story of the Housing First movement. Tom Hartman explained the Wall Street connection to higher home prices that lead to homelessness. And Second Thought detailed the Housing First policy in place in Finland. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips including Justice in America discussing the de facto debtor's prison system we have put in place in America. And what do you think the punishment for many of these infractions is? It's fines. And fines people can't afford to pay. Right. If you do any of these things, which indicate that you don't have enough money to buy a sandwich even, basically, then you now owe a whole bunch of money in fines. And if you can't pay the fines, now you're looking at jail time. Now, this may be confusing to some of you because debtors' prisons are supposedly illegal in America. And PBS NewsHour looked at the benefits of San Francisco's Homelessness Council, which gives homeless people a direct voice in the policies that affect them. And that's where Tipping Point 7 member advisory board comes in. Like Destination Home, it consists entirely of individuals who've been homeless. That input has resulted in major decisions in grant money spending, including Tipping Point's $11 million flexible housing subsidy program. It's been incredible to have that wisdom at the table. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I have a new theory I want to share about the conservative drift that happens with age. Like For as long as I've been politically aware, people have been debating why people seem to get more conservative with age. And all sorts of standard questions come up, you know, is it because their incomes have gone up or they just have more money in general and so they're inherently resistant to taxes? Or is it that with age they learned so much and they've gotten smarter? Or... They're just sort of more comfortable and they have more to lose and progressive politics is sort of revolutionary. And, oh, what if they really make a lot of change and that, you know, upsets the status quo that I'm comfortable with? That is the one that I think is sort of the closest, the the comfort with either the status quo or the comfort with just continuing to believe what you always have. Because, you know, maybe it's simply harder to integrate new information as time goes by, as you age, or you just get tired of learning new stuff or, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm sure people older than me will want to chime in on their own perspective on this, but it does seem to be consistent that older Americans tend to be more conservative. But my theory has to do less with a person changing their mind over time and more with a person not changing their mind over time. Inertia, following the status quo, continuing to believe what you have always believed. Those seem like really natural inclinations for all people, maybe all people of all ages, but those are things that seem like they may solidify with time and age. So I thought of a little bit of a metaphor to go along with this. Longtime listeners know that I I love a good metaphor, even as problematic as they can be. And I thought of political opinion as a sort of wave. There's flat water, ahead of and behind the wave, and the wave moves. So the the wave moving is, you know, happening over time. And so you could be in, you know, one of a few places in relation to that wave. You could be ahead of it. But to stay ahead of the wave, you got to swim or it's going to pass you by. You can't stand still ahead of a wave and expect to stay ahead of it. So the people who are ahead of the wave are like the researchers and academics and theorists, the people formulating ideas like intersectionality and critical race theory and the concept of sexual harassment, etc. Or you could be behind the wave and you're just sort of getting dragged along or maybe left completely behind and... That would make a person sort of bitter and annoyed, I think, to to see society changing and moving away from you. And so I think a lot of people, maybe most people, fall into that category, basically all conservatives. You know, they, they support whatever was in the past, like civil rights movement, but they oppose whatever is new in the present, Black Lives Matter, just as one example of many. 
And then the other place you could be is sort of riding the wave itself or, or riding the leading edge of it. You know, then you're actually, you know, you're up on your surfboard, you're surfing the wave, right? And this takes effort to catch the wave, but actually keeping it isn't that difficult. So for me, I remember going through the phase of resistance and, and difficulty when someone was sort of encouraging me to hop up on the wave. And the conversation that I remember most clearly was when someone tried to tell me for the first time that there was more than one definition of racism. I had grown up with sort of the standard uh, white-friendly dictionary definition of racism. It, you know, it's all in the Id individual's mind. It's all about how you feel personally. It's all about, you know, personal animosity based on race, that sort of thing. And then someone tried to introduce me to the idea that actually all racism is systemic racism, and so there's this other definition that sort of takes that into account. And I was extremely resistant to that. I was not a fun person to try to have that conversation with, because that was the first time I was being challenged to learn to update my information, learn to you know take in new things that I wasn't at all familiar with, and be open to that, basically. Now, I am perfectly comfortable riding the wave. I expect for there to be changes like that all the time. I expect to learn new things that change my perspective all the time. So I bring this up in the context of a, a cultural moment when we were having a lot of people who I think started out ahead of the wave and have ended up behind it, and now they are very confused and angry. So first example that comes to mind for me is always Bill Maher. He was seen as very progressive in the 90s. To me and to many, many others, he is seen as incredibly regressive by today's standards. He, I think, would argue, hasn't changed much, and so he thinks of himself as still progressive and probably thinks of himself as ahead of the curve and thinks everyone else has, you know, lost their minds. Dave Chappelle is obviously in the news recently for his you know most recent comedy special. Same sort of thing, right? Going back to the 90s, he was ahead of the curve. Now, not so much. Radical feminists in general, you know, that's not an individual person, but I, I think that they were asking really interesting questions about gender and sexuality decades ago. But by today's standards, they honestly have more in common with religious conservatives than mainstream feminists. And I think it's also worth noting how these regressive views get presented as modern and progressive, because the people who hold these views think of themselves as progressive. They think of themselves as ahead of the wave, right? Bill Maher, a listener told me maybe last year or sometime, and argued that Bill Maher is great because he's believed the same things he always has since the 90s, the implication being Look how smart he must have been to be so far ahead of the curve, so he must still be ahead of the curve, right? That's the assumption. But to believe the same thing that you did 30 years ago is not a bragging point. It means you have probably been left behind. Dave Chappelle, he has a new you know, anti-trans comedy special full of untruths as the basis for his opinions. But the people who love it, you know, they, they look at how far ahead of his time he was back in the 90s. He was speaking truth to power, right? He was, you know, satirizing racism. And so we should just assume that he's still the same way now. He's still ahead of the curve, except, you know, the power structure he's speaking to is trans women. You know, not so much. Radical feminists. Asking interesting questions decades ago, you know, I once heard a radical feminist podcast on which someone dismissed all modern perspectives and research and updated ideas on gender studies by saying, we figured out how gender worked in the 70s. You know, people were figuring this out before I was even conscious. To question it must be an insult to their efforts or something. Now, you don't figure things out once and then stop. You keep figuring things out forever. <laughs> that's that's how things uh, end up having to work. And then this is a little slightly off topic, but I, I think it's a, a good go-to. Jimmy Dore and, and the, the wing of the left or whatever he is or progressivism or something that he kind of represents, you know, his favorite go-to line is, I'm just a dumb comedian and even I understand this, which is 
fascinating psychologically. He's framing ignorance as common sense clarity, right? How could he possibly be wrong? He knows he's dumb, but he still also knows he's right. It's practically bulletproof. So these are the kinds of strategies that get used to make regressive or maybe just wildly off-base ideas seem incredibly legitimate and modern and progressive. So to get back to the political wave metaphor, I think that so-called wokeness is the social phenomenon that arises in every generation to tell people it is not okay to fall too far behind the wave. And by the way, that wave is moving, so you'd better catch up and get on board because having too many people behind that wave is actually destructive to society. You know, the metaphor doesn't quite fit there, but that's the point of it. That's why people get upset about people falling behind because it is detrimental to society. As a side note, just quick side note, I would argue that the derisive use of the term woke is itself racist because it started as a very positive concept in black slang. And so I think that to co-opt it and use it as a negative was a sort of semi-conscious effort to link what white people would consider incorrect English and grammar with a concept that they wanted to derive, you know, forward thinking that they also want to derive. And they would do that because it plays into the idea that anything stemming from black culture is inherently worthy of mockery and derision. I mean, it reminds me of the white panic over Ebonics back when I was a kid. You know, oh, we, we can't just say that it's okay to speak incorrectly. Society would collapse. And, you know, here we are 20 years later, 25 years later, and the term woke is in the dictionary. It was slang. Now it's not. It's official. So they deride the concept of wokeness with the help of a racist, grammar-policing sort of dog whistle because it helps reinforce existing power dynamics on the structural level. But then on the individual level, people just don't like to be told that they're behind the times or that they need to catch up, so they attempt to reverse it. I'm not behind. You're just crazy. You've lost your mind. This whole movement's lost its mind. You know, 10 years ago, in my opinion anyway, the left did not have a crazy section. <laughs> there was no such thing as woke. Uh, and now they do have a crazy section, which I call out as a liberal. It's a predictable response, but not one I think we really need to worry about too much or cater to because it's basically a flail. It's people who have delusions of their own sense of correctness because what they believe now kind of used to be generally accepted truth a while ago. And now that it isn't anymore, they think, well, I can't possibly be the one who's wrong. Everyone else must be wrong. But the reason we don't need to cater to this too much and, and why it is so obviously a flail is because the only way they ever rebuke the new concepts that they don't like is by wildly mischaracterizing them. I honestly don't think I've ever seen a single criticism against wokeness or critical race theory or feminism that doesn't mischaracterize those movements wildly, like not a little, a lot. So to me, that's the easiest way to know who's more right in this debate. Note that I didn't just say right, only more right, because I fully expect for the discussion to continue to change and evolve and for one side to become even more right over time. So in conclusion, be prepared to ride the wave rather than letting it pass you by. If you see yourself as ahead of it, that's great, but it isn't sufficient if you don't continue to do the work to stay ahead. If you don't have the time and energy to stay ahead, then the good news is, as I said, riding the wave really isn't that hard. You just have to keep yourself open to new information and fully expect to have to continually update your understanding of the world as society evolves, because it is going to continue to do that, I promise. If you'd like another metaphor to work with, I just came up with another one. We're in the middle of operating system season. New operating system updates have been coming out for computers and phones across the board, just like they do every year. Maybe you're not a tech geek who loves to use every new feature as it's released, but it is still in your best interest to stay relatively up to date, because just like your political opinions, if you let your operating system get more than five years out of date, 
your software and your worldview will start to run into major compatibility problems. So ride the wave, update your software. The only constant is change. Get over it. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptions trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay. And this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.